Welcome to Christchurch Manchester Sermon Podcast. CCM is one church that meets every Sunday in various locations across Manchester. For more information about who we are or about our Sunday meetings, please visit www.christchurchmanchester.com. In June this year, uh, we're going to celebrate the Queen's Platinum Jubilee. And that means I'm pretty sure no one in here has ever seen a coronation of a British monarch. Certainly not in the flesh. You might have seen a a, a video of it. It means that she uh, ascended to the throne and was coronated 70 years ago. She was actually coronated 69 because she had to wait a bit. Um, Monarchies aren't that popular and haven't been for a while. Uh, We like to choose our leaders these days. Um, and letting genetics do it isn't, isn't the fashionable way uh, to pick a head of state. It seems very archaic. Um, something that's even less popular than monarchy now is established religion or established class. And uh, whatever form the next coronation in the UK takes, it will, not, it will probably not look like the last one um, that we had. Uh, for most of us, we can watch the coronation of our own queen in our culture and not have the faintest idea uh, what's going on or why it's happening. We'd see a lot of pomp. We'd see partying. We'd see these ornate uniforms. We'd see horse-drawn carriages. We'd see tents and priests. We'd see men bowing and taking off crowns and putting crowns back on. And our prevailing thought would be, this all seems very expensive. Could we maybe have had another hospital instead? I would bet also that most of the coverage over the next few months, um, to the extent that it's covered at all, will spin what's happening as a celebration of, or maybe a criticism of, the United Kingdom. Pundits will wax lyrical about the NHS. They will mourn foreign policy decisions. They'll blog endlessly about what Britain represents and how it's changed. I will be astounded if anyone talks about how the Queen is set up to point us to the real King of heaven and earth. So why am I talking about the Jubilee and the coronation? Because this morning is Palm Sunday. And on Palm Sunday, we're remembering the time when Jesus mounts a donkey and he rides into Jerusalem and everyone is celebrating him. They wave palms, that's where we get the name. They sing Hosanna in the highest. And given that we don't understand coronations in our own culture, we can be forgiven for not noticing that what we're, ha- what we're celebrating today is exactly the same thing that's happening in the photo uh, that's about to appear on the screen. This is Palm Sunday, acted out by Queen Elizabeth. <laughs> you can see you've got the crowd celebrating. She's not on a donkey, she's in a gold carriage. It's a slight variation on the theme. <laughs> and as the next few days, over the next few days, we're going to go through Holy Week and we're going to go through Good Friday and Resurrection Sunday And rightly, we're going to be led to reflect on Jesus' sacrifice as the Lamb of God. We're going to talk about how he fulfilled the requirements for us to enter Yahweh's presence, um, Yahweh being the name God's given us uh, for himself. We're going to talk about words like sacrifice and atonement, and we're going to consider how Jesus paid the price for our sins. But all that stuff, what we call penal substitutionary atonement, it's not the only thing that's happening over next weekend. We're celebrating the coronation of Jesus. 
For some of you, this might be a surprise. You've only ever heard Easter weekend and the Passion Week through one lens of sacrifice. For others, you'll have heard before that, oh yeah, kings used to ride into towns on donkeys after they won a war. But the connections are much deeper than that, much more frequent than that, and really explicit. In Mark's Gospel, Jesus is never referred to as a king until he stands before Pilate. And once he stood before Pilate, he's referred to as a king six times in only 30 verses. So in the Queen's coronation, there's this private moment where the priests would anoint her with oil to symbolise being marked and empowered by the Spirit of God. Uh, when it happens in the coronation, we can go to the next picture, um, the, uh, the Knights of the Garter, in theory, her close friends, come and they hide her under a canopy. This is the best picture I could get. The Queen's like sat just in front of them, actually in the middle. And they would lower that canopy over and the priest would go in and he'd anoint her with oil. And the idea was that before she becomes king or queen, in her case, um, she needs to be empowered by the Spirit so she can step into her role. And now in the four Gospels, and they put it in different places, but either side of Jesus' triumphant entry, you have the story where um, the poor woman comes in and she anoints Jesus' feet with the, with the precious nard. He, get, he gets anointed with the very best oil um, right, right as part of this week. Later in our Queen's coronation, when, the queen is, when she's crowned, um, all, the, all the clergy of the church um, pay homage. They walk up to the Queen, and the basic idea is they say, yes, you're Queen, we recognise your Queen. Um, then the Dukes do the same thing, and that's where you get the crown taking off and the kissing. And the point here is that um, when, the queen, when a monarch is crowned, she is like the, the unifier of heavenly authority and earthly authority. So both the heavenly authorities represented by the church and the earthly authorities represented by the dukes pay homage to this queen that God has put in place. Now in Passion Week, we see two conversations. In John, we have a conversation between Jesus and Pilate, the representative of um, the government that ruled the entire known world. And in that conversation, Pilate asked Jesus, is it true that you're a king? And Jesus says, you say I'm a king. And then a bit later on, um, Pilate, said, Pilate presents Jesus to the people as their king, and he tells the guard to write to the king of the Jews on a piece of paper, and he's even asked to correct it, to say, this man said I'm the king of the Jews, and he refuses. So we have in Passion Week that the earthly authorities recognise Jesus as the king. We also have a conversation in the Passion Week where um, Jesus meets the uh, council of Jerusalem, the chief priests and the scribes, the religious leaders, and this conversation doesn't go quite so well. But in the midst of it, you still have the religious leaders saying, you say you're a king. Over this week, Jesus gets recognised by the earthly authorities and the heavenly authorities that he is the king. Later in John chapter 19, we read, um, Pilate went out again and he said to them, see, I am bringing him out to you that you may know that I find no guilt in him. So Jesus came out wearing a crown of thorns and a purple robe. And Pilate said to him, behold your king. Do you know what's happening here? If we go to the next picture, this is this moment. He is literally, he's bringing Jesus onto a balcony. Jesus is wearing purple robes. You can't see it because it's kind of behind her. But the queen has this train on, this long garment, and it's, it's purple and she gets given it as part of her coronation. We even have, it's called the, uh, the kingly epiphany. Where, um, Jesus, where the king gets announced to his people. And it goes further still, because 
uh, the Romans had a thing for ironic punishment. They didn't want to uh, just hurt you. They wanted to utterly humiliate you. Um, I did some research. I went far too far. There are examples of this. I just cannot repeat on a Sunday morning. Um, but suffice to say, crucifixion is reserved for people who are getting uppity. You know, the idea is, oh, you think you're so great. We'll lift you up, and then we'll see how great you really are. That was the idea behind uh, crucifixion. Everyone knew this. That's why they dressed him in purple. That's why they put a crown of thorns on his head. Crucifixion was known to be a fake coronation. The word to lift that they used to hoist the, the uh, cross up was the same word used to, when you talked about exalting a king. And I don't know, when, you, when you're hung on a cross, um, they put like a little, there's like a little triangle of wood that sits here, and sometimes you get nailed to it, but there's a little bit of wood that sits here. And that bit of wood was called the throne. That's the word they referred to it as. So the point I'm labouring here is that everything that would happen in a coronation ceremony happens to Jesus over this Passion Week. He is anointed. He processes into the city. He's recognised by the spiritual and earthly rulers. He is presented before his people. He is sat on a throne and he is lifted high. None of the actors believe that what they're doing is a real coronation. They think they're taking the mick. The mic. I have a different word in my notes. Um, they think it's all a joke, a, pre- a pretense to humiliate an uppity preacher from the wrong part of town. So be careful when you try to be ironic with God. While they were playing, Yahweh crowns the chosen king, the unifier of spiritual and earthly authority. He makes the Romans joke. He makes a joke of their joking. And all that by way of introduction... Passion Week is not just the fulfilment of sacrifices that we talk about at Yom Kippur and the Day of Atonement. It is also the the fulfilment of God's promise of a human king. So I would like to talk about kings. There's a pattern to how Israel got her kings. It's one of those things that the the, the more you look at it, the more connections you see. Um, And so I could go on forever. I'm not going to. But I'm going to look at four things that are common amongst the kingly accessions, so the process by which uh, Israel got her kings. And those are, and we're going to look at those for four different kings as well, those are God's kings are chosen by God, they are anointed by his spirit, they are tested, and then they are exposed. And I want to show you how Jesus goes through all of these steps, what that means, and then how it can apply to us. So firstly, God's kings are chosen. We're not very good at choosing our leaders, partly because most humans with power suck at using it, but also because we're all terrible judges of character. Until God promises David that his line will be in Jerusalem forever, Israel's leaders are not picked by primogeniture. That's that's where you say the firstborn son. That's That's not how the leaders were picked. Uh, Rather, God always selects his judges and his kings using his spirit through his prophets or sometimes through himself in human form turning up and pointing them out. So uh, King Saul, who was Israel's first uh, king, uh, is chosen in 1 Samuel 9. And Yahweh, God, says to him that the next day, uh, Yahweh says to Samuel, the next day a man from the tribe of Benjamin is going to turn up and this guy is going to be the king. There's an exchange about donkeys 
it always seems to involve donkeys. And Samuel, uh, and then Samuel sits and eats. He puts Saul at the head of the table, um, and and then Saul is recognised as king. But one of the interesting things in the story is Saul objects to it. And the reason he objects to it is because he says he's from the, the lowest of all of the clans of his tribe. Like he, is the, he was the least recognized minority in the place that he was living. Um, the story of David being chosen is super famous. Again, it's by Samuel. And Samuel turns up and asks Jesse, his dad, show me your sons. And they go through the sons, and one's great, and the next one's great, and the next one's a bit less great. But none of them are the king. And then... Um, the last son, the youngest son, his own dad didn't think him a possibility, so it doesn't even present him as an option to, to be king of Israel. But that's the person that God's picked. And we have a... He's a bit of a mess. He's described as a bit of a mess. Um, but the Lord looks on the heart, and he knows who he has chosen. Uh, king Solomon, who is the next king after David, he's chosen... Um, he wasn't technically next in line um, because... Um, David had some issues with women and there were different uh, lineages and he wasn't, he wasn't the next one, basically. Um, so one of the person who should have been the next one uh, gets up and starts making himself a king, gets people to follow them. And uh, Nathan, God's prophet, doesn't like this idea, um, goes and tells David, does some politicking um, and gets David to announce Solomon king immediately. And then God has chosen his king through Nathan the prophet. Um, and note that Solomon is the child of an illegitimate relationship. He's the, the son of um, David sleeping with Bathsheba and killing her husband. And he's not the next in line through primogeniture. And yet God knows who he has chosen. Um, in the Gospels, uh, we see John the Baptist, who spends all of his time um, preaching before Jesus, before Jesus comes. And uh, he talks about who he's preparing the way for. He says he's higher rank. He says he's going to be the son of God. And then when Jesus turns up, um, John baptizes him. There's some, there's some conversation. And the heavens open. And a dove comes down on Jesus. And a voice is heard from heaven that says, You are my beloved son. In you I am well pleased. Jesus was chosen, not the rich king Herod, not a well-known Jewish leader, not a member of the Council of Elders or the Sanhedrin. Yahweh chose the man of questionable birth, who was homeless and poor. Yahweh has chosen his king. When he chooses, he doesn't see things how we see them. He doesn't judge how we judge. He does not pick who we expect, but he chooses well. Jesus is Yahweh's chosen king. Um, the second thing that I mentioned earlier is that kings are anointed. I've put the verses on the screen um, because I want you to know that I'm not making this up, but I don't have time to read them. So, um, Secondly, uh, Yahweh's kings are anointed. Uh, Yahweh does not expect his chosen kings to rule through their own strength. He doesn't expect them to use their own power, their own wisdom, or their own authority. He knows that to rule well, disconnected from him, would be impossible. That's, actually, that's how he designed it, that we, were to be, we, uh, we are to be connected to him. Whoever God chooses, he anoints. He gives power, wisdom, and authority freely to those people that he chooses. In 1 Samuel 10, just after having that dinner we mentioned earlier, Samuel takes a flask of oil and pours it on Saul's head and sends him away. Um, on his way from there, Saul meets a group of prophets, and we read that God changes Saul's heart. 
And then this is a, this is a quote from uh, up there. Um, the Spirit of God came upon him mightily, and he prophesied among them. Saul wasn't a prophet. And he actually, this gives rise to that there's a saying that they have, well, is Saul among the prophets? And it's such an experience of God's Spirit rushing upon him. David also gets anointed by Samuel. Uh, in 1 Samuel 16, just after he's been chosen uh, from amongst his brothers, Samuel takes a horn of oil and puts it on him. And again we read, The Spirit of Yahweh came mightily upon David from that day forward. On to Solomon. In 1 Kings 1, 38-40, Zadok, Zadok the priest and Nathan the prophet, which is where we get the hymn from, by the way, if you know that, that song, they put Solomon on a donkey and ride with him into Gihon. Oh, look, it's Palm Sunday again, you know, riding on a donkey into a town, um, uh, which is where God's tent was. And they take some oil from the tent, and they put the holy oil on Solomon, and then a little while later, Yahweh changes Solomon's heart, and he gives, him, he gives him this wisdom. There's a little story in the middle that we'll come to in a moment. Um, in Jesus' story, immediately after his baptism, where the Spirit comes and rests on him as a dove, we read that it, it kind of takes him up. He's consumed by it and led out into the wasteland where he gets, where he gets tested. And after he comes back from being tested, um, Luke's Gospel says he is full of the Spirit of power. So God anoints and empowers the kings that he chooses Jesus is not just the king that Yahweh has chosen for you. He is the king that Yahweh has empowered for you. Jesus has the power, the wisdom, and the authority to lead you well. So Yahweh chooses his kings. He empowers his kings. But he doesn't want robotic kings that are devoid of any kind of uh, decision-making ability. Yahweh's desire has always been to to have human rulers with minds and hearts capable of making wise decisions. Just like Adam was commanded to rule the earth and subdue it in Genesis, um, Yahweh's chosen and empowered kings are active participants in government. The aim is not to be an unthinking mouthpiece of God. It's to be working with him um, to rule well. But for this reason, Yahweh's kings have to be tested. They They need to grow in obedience and faith. And their will has to be made to follow Yahweh. Uh, In 1 Samuel 11, we read about how Saul is tested. Um, When Samuel chooses him, uh, Samuel tells him that your job is to save the people from the Ammonites. And a a little while later, they hear that the Ammonites have come and they're besieging an Israelite city. And so, being obedient to God's calling, Saul goes up and he goes to war with the Ammonites uh, who were besieging that city. And we read that the Spirit empowers Saul uh, to, cut up a don- to cut up a yoke of oxen. And he sends the oxen out. And the, thing, the, the picture is, I will make you like these oxen if you don't come and fight for me, is the idea. But cutting an oxen is hard. And the, the scripture makes clear, um, the Spirit of God empowers Saul um, to do uh, the job that he's been given to do. Um, they beat the Ammonites. Uh, someone then suggests, because there were some Israelites who weren't that impressed with the idea of Saul being king. And uh, one of Saul's uh, general guys, he says, oh, you know, look, you've rescued us all. Uh, why don't you slaughter the Israelites who thought that you weren't the real king? And Saul passes the test again because he refuses to put anyone to death because it was a day to celebrate the Lord's deliverance. Note how in, the, in these stories, even though it was a test, it's God's spirit who is giving Saul the power to pass it. Uh, 
King David, we have the super famous story of uh, David and Goliath. Everyone else is terrified of the giant. Um, they have no idea what they're going to do about it. David is the one with faith who will go down to the river. He will obey the calling that God's given to him. And uh, David is explicit that it is Yahweh that gives him the ability to overcome Goliath. He throws the rock, rock in the head, Goliath dead, cuts off head, shows head to everyone, woo, David. Um, David passes the test because he is enabled by the spirit of Yahweh. Um, Solomon gets tested in a different way. Uh, in 1 Kings 3, um, Yahweh tells Solomon, hey, you're the king, ask me anything and I'll give it to you. And Solomon asks for wisdom. Uh, Yahweh's so impressed uh, with what Solomon asked for that he gives him wisdom and loads of other things behind. Besides, he's like super rich, everyone loves him, he has peace with all the people around him. Um, he passes his test, and it's actually, like, it's actually the same test that Adam failed. So uh, the idea of wisdom is the same idea as knowing the difference between good and bad. They're, like, they're the same word. So whereas Adam, took, whereas Adam and Eve took wisdom for themselves, Solomon asked Yahweh for wisdom, and Yahweh delights to give it to him. So he passes the test. Um, and then Jesus gets tested uh, there's two I want to uh, think about. There's the, the first one is where he's tested in the wilderness. The spirit drives him out and he has all of these temptations um, from the adversary. But Jesus remains loyal to Yahweh. Like he's offered... He knows his job is to rule all of earth and the adversary offers him a way to do it without going through the cross. But he maintains his allegiance to Yahweh even while he's offered an easier alternative. He's also then tested in the Garden of Gethsemane. There's a story where he's, he's praying before he's about to be arrested. And he's saying to God, look, God, if there's any way that we can do this without me going through this crucifixion, please, but not my will, yours be done. Jesus could have refused in that prayer. He could have run away and hid. It was a mammoth task, like... I wouldn't hold it against him, right? Instead, he recommits himself to Yahweh's plan rather than his own. And again, it's, another, it's actually another rerun of the Eden test. Like the hint is that it happens in a garden. He chooses God's way rather than his own. All the other kings that we've listed eventually fail a test. Um, Saul doesn't follow God's instructions later on and he loses the kingdom because of it. David takes Bathsheba and kills her husband. Solomon takes foreign wives, and once he does that, his authority starts to slip away as well. Jesus is the only one of God's chosen kings and that's, that is obedient all the way. And that's why we hear that Jesus is obedient to death, even death on a cross. He's the only one that passes the tests completely. So Jesus is a good king for you, not just because he is Yahweh's chosen, not just because he's been empowered by Yahweh, but also because he's passed every test and has proven himself obedient to God. You can trust him to lead you well. And the fourth thing we're going to look at is that God's kings get exposed. The authority that God gives his kings comes with responsibility, and to be responsible, you must be accountable. And that means that all kings must get exposed. They have to be seen. You can't hide. 
So Yahweh makes sure that those who claim authority are revealed for what they really are, and that's for the good of the people they're ruling. So for most of Yahweh's human kings, this ends up not being a happy experience. Adam was happy being naked until he failed his test. He was happy being exposed until he had to hide. Even at his coronation, Saul is hiding in the baggage. He doesn't want the responsibility. But later, he fails his test, and we watch him become more and more embittered. Um, He spends a long time trying to kill David, and the love of the people for him slips away, and they celebrate David more. David does a little bit better. Near the beginning of his reign, David is happy to be naked. He prances through the streets of Jerusalem to celebrate the arrival of the Ark of the Covenant in his, his stalkers. Um, but as things slip, we start to read about this man who's lazy, he's lonely, he's tired. When he should be out fighting Israel, and he's in his house, and he's ogling a woman who isn't his, who isn't his wife. Um, he sleeps with Bathsheba, he murders her husband. His firstborn son ends up leading a rebellion against him. Uh, at the end of his life, we see this picture of kind of a frail, a tired man who can barely hold his family together, let alone his country. Solomon gets greedy. We see hints of it earlier on. He uses slave labour to build Yahweh's house. Then he builds a bigger house for himself next door. He marries Pharaoh's daughter, which was a big no-no because she was Egyptian. Then there, are, then there are the wives. He has 700 of them, and that doesn't include the concubines. Then he starts encouraging the worship of other gods. By the end of his reign, Solomon is exposed as a womanizer and an idolater. We've talked earlier about how Roman crucifixion was supposed to be a parody of coronation, that it was designed to humiliate as well as to torture. In the accounts of uh, Jesus' crucifixion, there's one person who finally gets the joke, and it's a Roman centurion standing nearby. Because the Romans saw crucifixion as the ultimate exposure. The aim was to break you, to make you like a blubbering mess, to get you to recant of everything you'd said. The whole point was that everyone would see that you weren't what you said you were. And yet, at the end of Jesus' crucifixion, when he's hanging there at a cross, looking his weakest, a Roman centurion looks at this man and says, this man was innocent. Truly he was the son of God. Because this man, he was crowned and he was seated on his throne, but he had not lost his composure. He had not recanted. He had not become a blubbering mess. Jesus was exposed. He was hung naked on a tree. And yet when we look at him, we don't see defeat. We don't see moral failure or weakness. But instead we see the triumph of God over sin and death and the founding event of God's kingdom that will never end. So Jesus is the the king. He's chosen by Yahweh. He's empowered by Yahweh. He's passed all the tests and has been completely exposed. You can look at him because he's perfect. For some of you, you might have this fear of looking too closely at your faith. You are worried that if you think about it too deeply or explore too far or ask too many questions, you might find God lacking and that that would would break the faith that you have. 
I would encourage you to look at Jesus, to look deeply and to not look away. Because if a Roman centurion with no knowledge of, well, he might have had knowledge, but if a Roman centurion with no connection to the history of Yahweh can look at a bloody man on a cross and see God, you will find God when you look at Jesus. So this has all been nice and academic. And it is good to spend time reflecting on Jesus and meditating on him. It's good for our spirits. But I want to go a step further to show you how it needs to make a difference to to your life. And I want to quote two passages of scripture to you. Uh, 2 Timothy 2, verse 12. If we died with him, we will also live with him. If we endure, we will also reign with him. And 1 Corinthians 6, 2-3. Do you not know that the saints will judge the world? And if the world is to be judged by you, are you incompetent to try trivial matters? Do you not know that you will judge the angels? Because God's plan actually hasn't changed. He still wants a family of humans to rule over creation in his image. Your primary goal as a Christian is not to kind of, you've been forgiven by Jesus and now your job is to maintain a zero on some kind of moral balance sheet. That's, That's not the job. The job is to be trained as a ruler in God's new creation. And if you're a ruler, then all of this applies to you. You are chosen. If you aren't a Christian yet, but you have this desire to meet Jesus, to know him, you are chosen. We would love to pray with you and introduce you to your king. And we can do that this morning. You might be a Christian, but when I, got, when I say God has chosen you to be a ruler over creation, you're thinking, ah, you can't possibly be, mean me. Don't exclude yourself. Saul was a member of the lowest minority in the tribe of Benjamin. And God chose him. David's own dad thought so little of him, he wasn't even presented as an option. But God chose him. Solomon shouldn't have been next in line. There was someone who should have gone first. But God chose him. Everyone thought Jesus was an illegitimate child. He was poor and homeless. But God chose him. I don't know what it is that argues back in your mind against the idea that God has chosen you. But whatever it is, All that stuff does not undo God's choosing. You are chosen. Maybe you can accept the idea that you're chosen. Maybe you're excited at the prospect of growing into a part of God's ruling family. Have you been filled with the Holy Spirit? Because you cannot fulfill the role that God has given you without the empowering of his Spirit. It's Yahweh's absolute joy to give you everything you need. If you know you need more wisdom, more power and more authority from God, we would love to pray with you. And if Vishal comes up, um, while we sing our next song, you turn to the person next to you, you can come forward, someone will pray with you. Some of you know you're a Christian, you have a good relationship with God, you've been filled with the Spirit, you listen to his voice, but it's just hard you feel like you're under the cosh. 
There might be a temptation that's just pecking at your head. You can't get rid of it. There might be a sinful behaviour that you can't shake. It might not even be sin, but you know what you're called to and you can see an easier path. And you're really struggling to be obedient to God. For some of you, it might be an illness or a mental health condition. And it's just like it's been so long, it's grinding away at your faith. First, to encourage you, this testing, like Saul, like David, like Solomon, like Jesus, God is using it to prepare you for glory. It's not for nothing. I'm also reminded that when Jesus went through these tests, in both cases, God sent angels to minister to him afterwards. God cares deeply about you. He will comfort you when you ask him. And again, we would love to pray with you. So if that's you, please do ask someone for prayer this morning. And finally, we will be exposed. Romans 8 tells us that creation is waiting for the children of God to be revealed. It's groaning. And some of you are thinking, oh, please not me. Don't fear. Because of what Jesus does next weekend, you are permitted to wear white. When you, will be ex- when you are exposed, they will see him.